Good morning, everybody. My name is Christy, and this morning's Bible reading is from Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them, among them was Dynamis. Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. The second reading is from John chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, has not overcome it. Well, let me add my welcome to Chris. Uh, my name is Rod. If you're new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great to have you with us today. And we're starting, if you've come in during those first couple of songs or the video and you didn't hear the introduction, uh, we started a series last week called Conversations That Matters. And we sort of had an introduction to the idea of dialoguing with um, these difficult questions that our society often wants to raise today. And we're looking at the first of seven big questions this week, uh, the question being, how do you know God exists? Now, you may be somebody this morning that is not sure about that question, is not a Christian here. It's great that you're here, so we welcome you here. And you may have questions that come out of today. There may be Christians here that have questions that come out of today. And so that uh, number for texting um, will allow you to send us any questions that will be included in our podcast Deeper that we record each Tuesday. And so we collect questions from people and then we address that in that half hour podcast. So if, if that's you, then keep that in mind afterwards. But let me pray for us. Um, if you're not uh, a Christian here today, praying is simply speaking to the God that we're about to speak about and asking for his help. So let me do that for us now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you have declared yourself uh, through your creation, uh, ultimately through your word, the Bible, and the person of your Son, 
But as we grapple with this question, uh, which is often a struggle for many today, we pray that you might give us clarity, that you might help us to see the evidence for your existence, that we might place our faith in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we're to ask the question, how do you know God exists, the answer for many Australians today is, you don't. You may remember the recent census in 2016, which declared that 30% of Australians don't have any religious belief. And of course, the media made much of this at the time, saying a third of Australians don't believe there's a God. And of course, it's a growing trend that's reflected in the United States and also in Britain and a number of other Western countries. Uh, living in Wollongong over the last decade or so, I've certainly had lots of conversations with local Aussies who have such a viewpoint. There is no God. I don't believe there's any evidence. And I can remember in my late teens grappling with this question myself and thinking about what evidence is there. The famous British biologist and atheist author Richard Dawkins has said that he doesn't believe there's any evidence. He's written a number of books, uh, but uh, he's said several times in different places, in debates and so forth, um, that he simply thinks that faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. He put it at the International Science Festival in 1992 in this way. Some people will say, well, look, you know, you can't prove that there is a God, but then you can't prove that there isn't a God. So you should remain open to that question and simply be agnostic. I don't know. But then he said, as I think about this, I think that's a cop-out. The same might be said of Father Christmas or fairies in the garden. We don't know that there are fairies at the bottom of the garden, but I can't prove that there aren't. So maybe we should be agnostic about fairies too then. And of course, sort of the thinking behind this kind of sentiment is that our faith is a blind leap, that belief in God is irrational, that it's unreasonable, and that therefore people should do away with it. But of course, some people will go even further. Another famous British atheist, Christopher Hitchens, wrote in his famous book in 2007 entitled God is Not Great, that he sees faith in a God as childish ignorance. Childish ignorance. He says, belief in a God comes from the fearful infancy of humanity. It goes back to a time when people knew very little about anything. And in their ignorance, they came up with faith in God. He said, even the most unintelligent of my children know far more than the founder of any of the religions of the world. Belief in a God is childish ignorance. Of course, then again, it raises the question, why are there so many believers in God in the world? Well, those that come from this more atheistic mindset will say, well, that's because although there is no rational basis or need for a God, there's the psychological need. And so it's just a psychological crutch. People believe in a God because there's some unmet emotional need. They want to be comforted because of the difficult things in this world. They want to have some hope that there is a good life beyond the difficulties that we see and face. 
irrational, ignorant, weak-minded. Of course, what lies behind, the question that lies behind some for those who reject God are other things in terms of their experience of this world. Uh, For some people, um, these other questions are really the things that have led them to say that they don't believe there's a God. For example, suffering is often a big issue. And so people um, will have seen a loved one or a good friend uh, die or they'll have been diagnosed with cancer themselves and they'll say, look, I just can't believe there's a God. If there were, why would he allow such terrible things to happen for such suffering? And the difficulties that sickness and death and the hopelessness that can bring just mean for many people there just can't be a God. And then there are others that have questions just related to science, which I've already alluded to. I'll say, well, science, you know, it's replicable. You can keep testing things, you can prove things, but belief in a God, well, that's really unverifiable in the end. And so evolutionary theory, you know, that explains a lot of the developments in the natural order and the world we see around us. And so I just feel that science has made God irrelevant. You know, belief in a God is really like Christopher Hitchens would argue, it's a God of the gaps. You know, we used to believe in a God because we didn't understand everything around us, but as we advance in science and we have answers to all the questions, the need for God shrinks and shrinks until he's unnecessary. And then again, there'll be others that will have other pressing questions that have brought them to this point. And it may have to do with what they understand the God of the Bible to stand for. And they will feel, the little they know even, that they're judged, that their choices, their moral Example in their life is something that is looked down upon. And so then God is just a killjoy that is constraining my choices as I just want to pursue the good life. And so I can't believe in a God if that's what God means. Irrational, ignorant, weak-minded. These are some of the ways our world likes to talk about the question of how do you know that God exists? Now, maybe those issues that I've just raised are the questions behind the question for you. Maybe suffering has put a big question mark over the existence of God for you. Uh, Maybe the moral requirements of the God of the Bible makes a big question mark. Look, if, if they are questions for you, let me encourage you to come back because we're going to address some of those other questions in the weeks that follow. But I guess I want to pause now with that background and ask the question as we try and thoughtfully answer this sincere question, are there any flaws in this logic about dismissing God? Are there any hidden assumptions when it comes uh, to human reasoning? I want to consider for a moment this question of being rational and reasonable. And I think the first thing to ask is, how can we know anything about anything? Do we have a foundational blind spot, an optimism about our human thinking and reasoning that makes us think we can know the answers to questions like, is there a God, when perhaps we don't have quite the strength of reasoning we think. There was a feature piece that was written in The Spectator in London uh, just this last weekend by the Australian journalist and writer Greg Sheridan. He's recently released a book, God is Good For You. And in this article in The Spectator, he wrote about this issue of rationality and human ability to reason. He said this, Dawkins and others assume that faith is irrational. Most 
British people seem to take it on faith, ironically, that to have faith is stupid. But faith is not the enemy of reason, but the basis of reason. See, first, to be reasonable, I have to have faith in my ability to distinguish between what is real and what is imaginary. But then second, I also need to have faith in so many other people and what they have taught me or told me. He said, I have faith that I am the son of my late parents. It's a rational belief, but I can't prove it. It's not proven scientifically. And applying those themes a bit further, British journalist Theo Hobson wrote a few years ago about how uh, the atheist spring that began just over 20 years ago is now over. He said the success of five or six atheist authors on either side of the Atlantic Ocean seemed to herald a strong new movement. Atheism is still with us, of course, but the movement that threatened to form has petered out. This polemical approach to religion has swung out of fashion. Andrew Brown of the Guardian newspaper has played a role in this. In Britain, he said, he's a theologically literate agnostic person who is scornful of crude atheist crusading, as he puts it, and who sometimes ponders his own attraction to religious belief. On a more academic level, the British philosopher John Gray has had a powerful influence. He's very sceptical of all the relics of Enlightenment optimism, including the atheists' great faith in their own reasoning. See, could it be that our optimism, our confidence in our reasoning is unfounded? Or it's given a weight that it just cannot bear when it comes to such questions as the existence of God. And is the apparent humility of this newest generation of atheists and agnostics um, something that we should heed? That we really need to be open about the existence of God because science can't ultimately answer such questions. Why can't it? Well, there are lots of things in this world that we can't actually measure, aren't there? I mean, you could measure the temperature in this room if you had a thermometer. You can tell me how hot or cold you think it is. But you can't measure the love of the person sitting beside you towards you. You might believe that your parents love you or that your spouse loves you. But you can't quantify that for me. You can't prove it to me scientifically, but you strongly believe it's true. When we move into such categories, we suddenly find that rational proofs of science leave us floundering. As the Australian journalist Greg Sheridan noted later in his article, most of the atheist assault on belief deliberately confuses what is rational to believe with the much narrower category of what is rationally proven. So what would we need to consider? If you're not sure that there is a God, walk with me for a moment. What would we need to consider if we allow for the possibility that God is probable? How would we consider the probability of God existing? Well, a famous American author, Tim Keller, gives us a whole series of things to consider on that question. Let me just walk you through a few of them. In his, whole, his book, uh, Making Sense of God, he acknowledges a number of things that we have to think about. Firstly, there is the existence of God being inferred from existence itself. It's often called the cosmological argument. Everything must come from something. You know, science has always got to take you back the previous step. 
Science does not know anything that cannot be measured from a starting point onwards. There's no chain of events that doesn't have a beginning. And so the problem with the cosmos and everything we look around us is we've got to say, what is the first cause? Is there a God that sits behind it? Even if you were to believe in a Big Bang theory, who made the Big Bang? If you believe in evolution, who started the process? Where does it begin? Now, this isn't conclusive proof of God, but it's a point that offers a case for the power beyond this natural world that brought it into existence. And then secondly, there's the argument of intelligent design. The argument of intelligent design. That is the fine-tuning of so, ele so many elements of our world. Why is it that things work so exactly as they are if it's all just happened by blind chance? If it's just cells that, and atoms that have run into each other and formed? Think of the constants in terms of physics in our universe. Why is there a constant of the speed of light? Why is there a gravitational constant of weaker and stronger nuclear elements? Why is everything tuned to just how it is? You might think of our world as a whole series of dials, and they all have to be tuned exactly for organic life on Earth to even exist. And the truth is, as scientists have looked at this, it's one in billions of trillions chance that all the dials will be turned as they are so that we're here today and can breathe. One in billions and trillions. Surely it points us to the fact that there must be a designer for it to work so perfectly in this way. There's a third argument uh, that's called the moral argument. We could express it this way. It could come out at a number of angles, but think about the issue of human rights. Why is it that we believe strongly in human rights, certainly in a country like Australia and most around the world? I mean, evolutionary theory would tell you um, that we're just here so that we can be surviving, and so might is right, the strong will survive, the weak will perish. So why would you protect the weak? What interest do we have in prote protecting a random group of weak cells that have formed? Why is it that we feel so strongly about protecting those that don't have a voice? It doesn't make much sense unless there's a God who has designed us this way, who values each human life and who instills that value in us. The moral argument. Finally, there's the issue of human consciousness. I mean, how do we explain our idea making and our abstract thinking on a purely evolutionary level? It's hard to see how our ability to survive is helped by our abstract thinking about philosophy or our ability to do really difficult mathematical equations. How does that help me? How is it that we love and have relationship and connect and have a consciousness and awareness of our surroundings that we can think about the past and then imagine a different future? How is it that we're so complex and wired the way we are? See, if you believe that your self-consciousness, your free choice, your love, your ability to reflect on reality are central to what it means for you to be a human, and if you believe that your sense of the significance of love is not an illusion produced by your genes, then surely you would be reluctant to accept that this material world is all there is. Now, of course, all of these arguments don't force you to believe in a god, but what they do is make it very clear that it is a rational step to believe in a God. It points us to it being more probable 
that there is a God, then the leap of faith of believing there's nothing and we have no purpose or meaning. And you know, those kind of arguments that seem reasonable regarding a God that creates all life and yet values each individual are the kind of arguments that we find in God's word, the Bible. That's what we discover as we read it. And what we had read for us earlier is Paul speaking to a sceptical group of leaders in Athens in the first century. So notice again what Paul said and see how he speaks to a pagan, philosophically thinking Greek world. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Now notice here, um, Paul has the opportunity to explain the God of the Bible to the ruling council of Athens. These are thoughtful people that spend all their time, Paul has said earlier in the passage, thinking about such things. And notice he doesn't come at it because it's a psychological crutch. He produces rational arguments that he says flow out of the natural order as he looks around the world. And so in verses 24 to 28, he speaks about how it's a natural impulse, it's logical that there is a creator, a God who has brought forth all that we see. More than that, he wants to say that's not only a Christian argument, but it's something that people can come to, to a common starting point an intellectual view that even the Greeks already held themselves. And so verse 28, he quotes two writers. Start of verse 28, he's quoting uh, a commonly held belief throughout Greek culture that um, can be traced back to 600 BC, Epimedes, a Greek writer and philosopher, who said, in God we live and move and have our being. And then the last part of verse 28, he's quoting Aratus, another Greek philosopher from 250 BC. He says, we are his offspring, speaking of God. Humanity is the offspring of God. And what he's saying is, these are reasonable, logical arguments that people who are not even believers in the God of the Bible have already reached, that there must be a creator. There must be. Now notice... As Paul gives these arguments um, to those listening to him, he is saying that the basis for his thinking is our ordered world. But the question is what he will do next. He says, well, here's our common basis. You can see with me that it seems likely that there is a rational mind behind this universe, that there is a God. So where does he go next? Well, he wants to assert the person of Jesus and his unique role in proving the existence of God. Have a look at verses 29 to 31, Acts 17. Paul goes on, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people 
everywhere, notice the universality, to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So what Paul does here is state that the unknown creator, which everyone deduces is there, certainly in his day, has touched history by entering into his creation in a verifiable way. And he's given proof of that to everyone through the resurrection. See, the proof didn't come in a dream to one individual that couldn't be verified. It didn't just appear in some holy book that somebody had dictated to them. It wasn't somebody's speculation. He's saying God has entered in real time in history and that Christ's life and his death and resurrection in particular are datable events seen by a multiplicity of witnesses. You can test this faith. You can judge it for yourself before you step out in trust in Jesus. He's claiming that Christianity is unique, that the person of Christ is unique, and that this is the ultimate proof of the existence of God. These are huge claims, aren't they? But these are the ones that Paul wanted to make so clearly to those who are listening to him. Now, I'm not saying that everything in the Bible or everything in Christianity can be investigated historically in that way, but the core beliefs about Christ's life and his death and resurrection are really well documented for us, not only in the New Testament, in the Bible, but in lots of documents outside of it. And so we can go and look at the data and make up our own mind. Now, see, this point gave great pause to one of the strongest atheist writers of the 20th century, Anthony Flew. I know if you've heard of this guy, professor of philosophy at the University of Reading in the United Kingdom. He was one of the most strident atheists throughout the second half of the 20th century. He started writing books and speaking strongly against any faith in God from the 1950s onwards. He wrote a powerful book in 1961, another one in 1971. He was in debates throughout the 80s and 90s with those that wanted to stand against him. He was the son of a Methodist minister, but by his late teens had become completely convinced that there is no God. And he was a fierce critic until he wrote this book. He said he was always open to the evidence, and in 2007, to the shock of many people, he published a book entitled There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And in it, he said that the new discoveries in DNA, in particular, the intense detail and mathematics involved in DNA, had convinced him that there must be a rational mind or God behind the universe. And can you believe this? At the end of his book, he wanted an appendix in it that was written by the Christian historian N.T. Wright, and he wanted N.T. Wright to provide the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Blew people's minds. They could not believe this was Anthony Flew. This is what he said about why he wanted information about Jesus in there. He said, If you're wanting omnipotence to set up a religion, it seems to me that Christianity is the one to be. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is a disclosure of God to the world, an event worth investigating. Well, that's what we read earlier in John 1, 1 to 4. The Son of God, Jesus, came to this earth and he 
not just another person, but uniquely the eternal Son of God. And people say, well, you can't prove that God exists. He's your imaginary friend in the sky, unseen, unknowable. What Bible, biblical Christianity wants to say to you today is this. If you had lived 2,000 years ago in Israel, you could have walked up to God and shaken hands with him. Jesus, the eternal son of God, present on this earth, taking on flesh. There is nothing that can beat that. And Paul is trying to say in Acts 17 that this author of life, as the Bible refers to Jesus, has come and his resurrection is the proof that he is God and that God wants a relationship with us. That God desires that we're his offspring. He's wanting us to reach out and find him, as verse 27 says. The question is whether we want to find him, accept him. God's interested in a relationship with us. The question is whether we're interested in a relationship with him. Well, how did the people respond to Paul when he spoke in Athens that day? When they heard this amazing message that he gave, drawing together their Greek philosophy and speaking about Christ, what was their response? Well, verse 32 to 34, this is how the passage ends. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You notice here there are three reactions. So there are those who sneered, who rejected Jesus outright. But then there's a second category, those who want to hear more, those who have got questions and want to find the answers. And maybe that's you here today. You're not sure where you stand with Jesus. You've got lots of questions. And maybe this morning has just raised more of them. Well, let me encourage you to ask those questions. Speak with somebody after the service. Even better still, join us for our four-week Discover course that you heard about at the start of the service. You can speak to myself or Chris Rothwell, who's leading the service, who will be leading those four Tuesday nights throughout September, starting September 3rd, just here in the church, across their foyer in the hall. We've got lots of time over coffee and dessert to ask every question under the sun, to explore those questions. Please don't just leave them sitting, but investigate further. That's the rational, reasonable thing to do. And of course, there was a third category as well, those who actually believed, who accepted Jesus from Paul's teaching and followed to learn more. There's the joy of those who have come to understand. And I've got to say to you that many of the people here today, if you're not a believer, have come to that point of trusting in Jesus. But I'm sure many of them, like me, went through a process of asking lots of questions Christians are not ignorant or irrational. They're usually people that have thought really hard about these big questions too to reach a point where they've placed their trust in Jesus. So that's my encouragement to you, to go through that journey as well. Well, maybe perhaps one of the biggest questions for you, as I've quoted big slabs of Acts 17, is, well, you're taking me back to the Bible, but I'm not even sure that this book is trustworthy. Well, if that's you, then please come next Sunday because that's the very next question we're going to look at. 
How can we know that the Bible is true? Will you pray with me? Let's pray and ask for God's help as we think further. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your wisdom, you have provided evidence of yourself in the creation around us, but also through what we see in ourselves for the way you've wired us as human beings and ultimately through the giving of your word and the coming of your son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that you might help each one of us to think deeply on these questions, that we might be convinced that you indeed do exist and that you sent your son to walk amongst us so that we might know you. Help us, we pray, to come to him, to place our trust in him, Inform our rational minds with the truths that you present to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.